and welcome to the Cass Health Podcast, the show where we hope to connect our community with healthcare information that's relatable, understandable, and useful to your life, and where you get to know better the neighbors providing your care here. Before we get started, two quick disclaimers. First, the comments in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Cass Health. Second, the information in this podcast is not intended to be construed as personal medical advice. Always consult your primary care provider with your questions and concerns regarding your health. Dr. Ingvaldstad, thank you so much for coming to the Cass Health Podcast today. We appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you, Anne. To start our podcast, we like to do some rapid-fire questions just to get to know you. So right right off the bat, where are you from? Uh, So originally, I grew up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, so not too far from here. I currently live in Omaha, though, full-time, and... My family and I have been in Omaha for about 16 years now, and that's the same amount of time I've been in practice. And your favorite TV series? Favorite TV series. Uh, Well, I'll be honest, I don't have a lot of time to watch TV, but uh, one I have been enjoying recently is, well, there are a couple, okay, now that I say that. Um, Yellowstone is a good one. I don't know if you've seen that one. Very Very popular. popular. Very good, kind of riveting. Yeah, so that's the, the one I'm currently into. And if you're cooking dinner to impress, what are you making? Mm. And I usually keep it pretty simple, usually like maybe uh, some steaks on the grill, sautéed mushrooms, some kind of a pasta dish. I'm ready for grilling season. Oh, me too. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Uh, What about hobbies? Yeah, so I have a couple hobbies. Running is a big one. I'm a a runner. I like to run marathons. And I also am into music, so I play cello. I played when I was younger and played all the way through high school and college and then kind of dropped it for a few years at, during medical school and training and all of that. But then about six years ago, I got back into it. So I've been taking lessons and it's been fun as an adult trying to keep up the skills just enough so I can play for fun. Absolute favorite instrument. That's oh, mine. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, that's a great I, instrument. I've always thought, I thought, you know, gosh, that might be one of those retirement things that I'll learn how to play. It's never too late and I, to with learn. The, too, that's probably like a good stress relief for you too, is to be able it just is. to like yeah. be mindful about what you're doing in your lessons. and. Yeah, that's the thing about music or playing an instrument. It is, in, and you use the term mindful, <clears throat> it sort of forces one to be mindful and engaged in an activity. And you really can't think about much else when you're playing cello. Um you know, and so it's a nice break. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite holiday? Has to be Thanksgiving. Love the food or you just love that it's like low key? Low key. <laughs> and I love the food, but I love the fall. Probably one of my favorite times of year. Uh, the weather's still usually nice. And it's, I mean, I love Christmas as well, but it doesn't have quite the same stress level as Christmas. And it's fun to see family and so... What will we never catch you doing? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I'm pretty gregarious. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I try just about, just about everything. Um, I would say bungee jumping I would not do. I think it's probably not, uh, not in my best interest. <laughs> <laughs> is, is it the heights or is it just like the actual I, bungee jumping? I don't trust the bungee cord. Yeah, yeah. I always tell my... <laughs> or the, how many times has someone else jumped on that bungee cord? Yeah. I almost feel better about skydiving for some reason. I don't think I would do that either. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I don't have a don't, fear of heights. I have a fear of falling. Yeah. So... <laughs> I don't have any real desire to do those kinds of things. Uh, what's better, the book or the movie? The book, for sure. And do you have a favorite genre that you like? So, you know, for books... I, I like history. I like historical fiction would be kind of the, the things that I gravitate toward. 
again, uh, but prob- I'll read a good mystery novel from time to time too. Probably not a, a whole lot of spare time to do that either. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but you know, I've actually uh, enjoy reading too. Similar to cello, it's a good release at the end of the day to yeah unwind, to unwind and, and let and, your mind yeah. relax a little bit. Yeah. So when you're driving alone in the car, you've got some travel commuting, obviously, you know, out here to yeah. Castle. Uh, what do you jam out to? So. I do love music, and I'll, I'll listen to just about any type of music, from classical to rock and roll. I, I kind of like the 70s, 80s, 90s rock genre, but I also like bluegrass and a little, a little bit of country, a little sure. bit of everything. Sure. Yep. Favorite cello artist or anything? So there's Yo-Yo Ma. Everybody knows yep. Yo-Yo Ma. Yeah. He's, he's amazing. I've seen him a couple times in concerts. Yeah. He's been to Omaha before, and he's just a really great guy. But there's there, there are a lot of really good cello uh, artists that a lot of people haven't heard of. They just don't have the notoriety. Jacqueline Dupree is one that comes to mind who she passed away a long time ago. She was um, pretty famous probably back in the uh, 60s, 70s, but she's got some of the really best recordings out there of some some of the box shell suites and things like that. So um, Worth checking out, huh? Worth, che- worth checking her out, yeah. Okay. How about pets? We've got, we have plenty of pets. We have two dogs, two cats, and a finch, and then we have three chickens. And are the chickens, are they layers? They're backyard chickens. Backyard yeah, chickens. Egg, yeah, they're egg, egg-laying chickens. Oh, so whose job is it so to go? That's my them? wife. She's, she's <laughs> the chicken. She's, she's the chicken her, lady. They're her okay. pets, and they're her duty. So, But they're fun. It's amazing what three chickens with. We never have to buy eggs. That's enough for the whole family. So. Yeah, yeah, it is. Nice. And, you know, like I was, um, we've had chickens we before, had five. Too. I won't say what happened to the other two. They, well. You know how, yeah. <laughs> how life is. <laughs> My yeah. kids have chickens often for 4-H, and yes. And, yeah. and, you know, the extra lettuce and spinach and all sorts of yeah. things like that, you know, yeah. they we, love it. And we, we make good use of some of our leftovers of or some of our yeah. fruits and vegetables that are maybe past their prime. Yep. The chickens yep. love them. The chickens will eat them. Yeah. And how about next or dream travel destination? You know, I'd love when things open up and things are opening up travel-wise again. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to go back to Europe. Um, it's been a long time. My wife and I took a trip there for our 10-year anniversary, which was a long time ago. But we'd love to take our kids before they're too old and out of the house. So we're kind of looking at maybe next summer doing something like that. Fantastic. Yeah. Great answers. <laughs> we'd like to know from our guests why they're in the careers that they're in so for you why medicine what drew you in you know it probably started because my father was a physician Um, he was an obstetrician and gynecologist in Sioux Falls and growing up I had a lot of exposure that's a pretty intense lifestyle with the, the amount of call and and so I just I watched him being very busy but I also knew he loved what he did and had a passion for it and occasionally I would see him at work because, you know, because of schedules and things, he might be the one picking me up from a basketball game, but he'd have to go around at the hospital on the way home. So occasionally he'd bring me in and I would sit at the nurse's station and chat with the nurses while he was doing his rounds. And so I kind of got to know the system and, you know, it was something that I was curious about. And I thought, this is a pretty neat career. And then through my schooling, I was really drawn to science and and biology in particular. And so I knew I wanted to do something in the science-related fields, biology. 
And I probably didn't decide on medicine until my third year in college was when I really made the, the final decision. I had taken all the prerequisites. I did pre-med prerequisites, knowing that might be an option. But I had also considered a, possibly a career in, you know, bench science or, or a Ph.D. Or, or, you know, the professor track or something like that. But, but I think I would have missed the interaction, the human interaction and the other things that go along with medicine that are really rewarding. So... And where did you go to school and then do your residency at? So at college, I went to the University of New Hampshire out on the East Coast. That's, so a, that's a bit of a drive from a South Dakota. bit of a drive from <laughs> South Dakota. Then I went to medical school in Augusta, Georgia at the Medical College of Georgia. The reason I went to Georgia was partly because my parents moved from South Dakota to Georgia uh, during that year, the years when I was in college. And so uh, it ended up being nice to be cl- kind of close to them. And I also was an in-state student. Oh, smart. <laughs> so it worked out well. <laughs> and then medical schools, uh, four years. So we spent four years in, in Augusta. And my wife is also a physician. She's a psychiatrist. And that's where we met. We met in medical school. And then uh, probably during my f- fourth year. So medical school is a neat time because you really get exposed to all of the specialties and, you know, anything from orthopedic surgery to internal medicine, to family practice, to neurosurgery, to ophthalmology. And during the fourth year of medical school, most schools allow the chance, that's the first time you really have the chance to do electives in a specialty that you may be interested in. Occasionally you might get to do it a little earlier, but I did an ophthalmology rotation as one of my first rotations, my fourth year in medical school, that's when it solidified that I wanted to go into ophthalmology. I knew I wanted to do a surgical field, something with procedures, um, but also something that had a mix of clinic uh, time as well. Ophthalmology is one of the fields that has that nice mix. But the surgeries in ophthalmology are really quite amazing to watch, especially the first time. For me, the first time I saw cataract surgeries, I think when I was hooked, I thought, man, this is amazing that we can actually, you know, do this microscopic surgery and people have such good outcomes. And from there, uh, you know, once you've kind of decided what field you would like to go into, you start applying to residency programs. And I applied to ophthalmology programs and got in at the uh, University of Missouri in Kansas City. So then I did my four-year ophthalmology residency in Kansas City. After uh, four years of ophthalmology, you, if, you have, if you so desire, you can further specialize. And so there are subspecialty uh, categories such as retina, which is my specialty, or vitreoretinal surgery, as you'll hear some people refer to it as. But you could also specialize in glaucoma uh, or cornea and refractive diseases, which my partner, Dr. Heimbaugh, who also comes to Atlantic, specializes in uh, neuro-ophthalmology, pediatric ophthalmology. Those are some of the, the main, the more common um, specialties. So anyway, I realized that for me, the retina was the most interesting part of the eye. And so I went on to do a retina fellowship at the University of Nebraska in Omaha uh, Medical Center. So that's how we ultimately ended up in Omaha. My wife actually had some connections in Omaha as well. We found a great practice and great group of friends, and, and so we decided to stay and been there ever since. And 16 years later, yeah, still there. So that was a very long answer to no, where did you go to college. It's, but it's, I think that's... No, it's <laughs> great. I mean, we'd love to know those details. And, yeah. you, know, you know, knowing where you've been around the country, that's just another way for patients to connect with you. Sure. And, um, yeah. you know, so it's great. 
we love the long answers. <laughs> great, great. So as a retinal specialist, mm -hmm. first, right off the bat, what is the retina? Great question. First, I'll preface this by saying it, it helps to know a little bit about the anatomy of the eye so that you can, one can picture what the retina is and what the function of the retina is. The simplest way to think about it is the eye is a camera, okay? So the way a camera works, and let's talk about old-timey cameras that used film before we got to digital cameras, because How, how old-timey? Do I need to, like, no, like Wild like, West? No, like the great we're okay. just talking about Kodak <laughs> Just like cameras. a regular yeah, point. Regular, okay. regular okay. SLR or point-and-shoot, but one that okay. has film, 35-millimeter film. Sure. So as, as we all know, the light comes in the front of the camera, light from our world. It's focused by the lens on the camera, and then that focused light is focused to a point on the film. And the film is sort of the light-sensing part of the camera that captures the image. And then you develop that film and you get a picture. Digital cameras work in a similar way. A light comes through a lens, which is focused. But instead of film, we have a digital sensor, pixelated you know, spots. And so I, it's essentially the same uh, mechanism. Well, the eye works the same way. And the retina is like the film in the camera or the digital sensor in a, in a digital camera. And anatomically or structurally, the retina is the inside lining of the eye. So our eyeball, and it is shaped like a ball, if you think of it like a basketball, the retina would line the interior of that basketball almost all the way around. It doesn't go 100, uh, 360 degrees around, but it goes almost all the way around. So as light comes in to the front of our eye, our lens and our cornea system focus that light. Our glasses or contacts help with the focusing if, if we need them. And then it, it comes into perfect focus on the retina. The retina then is made up of many cells called photoreceptors. These photoreceptors would be like pixels in a digital camera sensor. And those photoreceptors uh, capture the image and send a message to nerve endings, which then go back to our brain. Our brain is then takes that information and makes it into a picture. So it's really fascinating. It's really amazing how, and this is one of the reasons I picked yeah. retina as a specialty and one of the reasons I picked ophthalmology because I just, you know, learning about how all of this works is so amazing. It's easy to take it for granted. It's easy to take it for granted. Because it is we just think. such an, a miraculous thing that our eyes do this. Yeah, we think, we just, we just see. We've we just seen see, it. We, we, right. We, we, we just take it for granted. Yeah. So, so the retina really is, is capturing the image and telling the brain what to do with it. And then the brain, our, our vision is actually takes place in our brain, believe it or not, in our, we call it the occipital cortex, was part of the brain that interprets the vision. So it's making sense of all it's this making, light that's coming in and the, exactly. that these, these images that are being captured. Right. Okay. And our wow. eye is like a video camera that's just rolling all the time. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. So I, I, can, I can just see your enthusiasm for how amazing the retina is. So the, I'm assuming that's why retinal specialists, because there are, yeah. there are, gosh, there's more than a dozen type of specialties surrounding the eye, aren't there? Yes. Right. So, so what, was there a yeah, particular no. moment like you were like, retinas, that's it? To heck with the cornea. The, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to cast any shade on the cornea. The cornea is, uh, Dr. Heimbaugh wouldn't be happy with me. There's, the cornea is important too, but uh, there are multiple reasons. The, I think what triggered my interest was just the intricacy of the retina. The other cool thing about the retina is when we examine the retina in a patient, the retina is one of the places where we can see blood vessels in the body in real time. So when you're getting an eye exam and your doctor's looking through that microscope, 
they can actually see the blood vessels in the back of the eye, which are the blood vessels that are supplying the retina. And there are certain conditions in our body that can show uh, we can see problems in those blood vessels, sometimes little hemorrhages or hardening of the vessels, and that could be you know related to underlying things like high blood pressure or diabetes or uh, high cholesterol, thousands of other things, you know, autoimmune disorder, just about anything that affects our body systemically there is going to be some thing that may affect the eye and the retina is, is is the location where a lot of that takes place and so that interplay between the eye which is an organ that we can see into and the systemic health of the patient was also very fascinating to me so that part of it you know i see something new just about every day in clinic you know and and i'm learning all of the time and you know for me the retina was kind of just the the link between the system the health of the body and the eye exam. It's fascinating. In addition to that, there's some really cool surgeries that we do for eye uh, conditions that can affect the retina as well. And those are are quite quite amazing and and quite uh, interesting. And and they have come a long way. You know, it wasn't that long ago that certain conditions that affect the retina, like retinal detachments or scar tissue on the retina called epiretinal membrane, were really difficult to fix, and there wasn't much that could be done. You know, 40, 50 years ago, those patients would have very tough time. Nowadays, a lot of those conditions are very, very successfully treated, so that's kind of exciting too. And that's evolving all the time. The surgeries are getting better. The treatments are getting better. We're learning more about the retina. And the retina really is a link between sort of the nervous system, the central nervous system, and how our brain works and interprets vision and the rest of the body and the outside world. So it's pretty cool. What are the types of things that you are seeing here at Cass Health? You know, some of the common things that you would be treating here. Right. So here at Cass Health, uh, in the eye clinic, you know, I see just about anything that walks in the door. Any patient that has an issue um, with the retina uh, can be referred to me here. The most common things that we see, number one would be macular degeneration. That has really become an epidemic in our time. I mean, it's very common, and there's a wide host of presentations of this. Um, Some patients who develop macular degeneration, end up needing treatment for this, especially if they develop what we call the wet type of macular degeneration or exudative macular degeneration. And those patients um, often need uh, injections into the eye. And so we do those here at the hospital. And um, so that is something that the nice thing for patients is they don't have to travel to Des Moines or Omaha or another city where we also do those treatments. Our clinic's in Omaha, our main, main office. But many patients who get these injections need them every month, or some patients even more often than that. Oh, that's a lot. And so it's a big burden to drive to Omaha every month or you know every two weeks in some cases if both eyes are being done, for example. So, so that's probably the most common thing we do because, and, and that's one of the big reasons we come here is to... to bring that care to patients where they live. The second most common thing would be diabetic retinopathy. So diabetes uh, is one of these systemic conditions that affects the body. The culprit, the problem in diabetes is high blood sugar. Over time, that can cause damage to the retina. And so we do screenings and check patients for damage to the retina. Dr. Gergen also does the screenings and helps us a lot with that. If they get to the point where we are seeing damage that needs treatment, Um, Sometimes it involves injections. 
similar to macular degeneration. We do those here in the office. Occasionally, they require more surgical treatment or laser treatment. And, and those patients then would come to Omaha to our surgery center to have those treatments done. And fortunately, that's less common that that needs to be done. Another somewhat common uh, problem that we see is retinal detachment. That's more of an emergency or urgent problem. And so those patients might come on a day that I'm here. They may also just come to the eye clinic with new symptoms of you know, flashes of light or floaters or a curtain in the vision. And their local optometrist or Dr. Gergen here at the eye clinic may diagnose a retinal detachment and then refer them to me urgently. Or I may see them at this office if I happen to be here within 24 hours. But usually we like those patients to be seen within 24 hours and then surgery done shortly thereafter. And all of those surgeries would be done in Omaha? Yes, yes, something like that would be done in Omaha, either at our surgery center or sometimes at the hospital, actually. So those retinal detachments, because, you know, macular degeneration and that diabetic uh, retinopathy, those are things that my optometrist is probably going to see those first signs. Yes, definitely. Um, But the Mm -hmm. detachments, that is an emergency situation that can happen to anyone of any age. So walk us through, how do I know... (laughs) this might be the culprit and I need yeah. emergency attention. Yeah. It's a good thing to know about because you're right, it can affect anybody just about any age. That said, there are some risk factors that most people don't need to be overly worried about this because it is fairly uncommon. In people who are highly nearsighted are at higher risk. So if, if you're very, very nearsighted, that is a risk factor. If you have a family history of retinal detachment, that is a risk factor. Age can be a risk factor, too. So retinal detachments are extremely rare in young patients. You know, I would say... Maybe for like an eye injury? Would that yeah, be? Yeah. Okay. Young people who get, you know, children or even those in their 20s and early 30s who present with retinal detachments either have some very strong family history that, that or systemic underlying predisposing condition or a history of eye trauma would be the other most common thing. Um, and so, so those, those are uncommon. As we get older, spontaneous retinal detachment can happen, and the symptoms would be, number one, floaters. Okay, so now floaters can be kind of a normal variant. Some, a lot of people get floaters, and you may feel like you see little tiny bugs in your vision or something like that, and what that is is actually the gel in our eye, the vitreous gel. As we age, sometimes it condenses or even separates in parts of the eye and clumps together and it causes little shadows and you may see that and so what I tell my patients is if you see little floaters and you've had a recent eye exam and your doctor said it's okay and you kind of know this is my baseline this is my normal then it's nothing to worry about but if there were a sudden increase and by sudden I mean it happens like you know you wake up one morning and you have a thousand new floaters that were not there the day before or right. you're eating lunch and all of a sudden you see this cobwebby stuff coming through sure, your vision sure. usually you'll kind of know something that would be a reason to go get checked out right away okay it may not be a retinal detachment there are other sure. reasons for this and some of them are very mild benign but it's sure. better safe than sorry so we always tell people if you have that sudden onset new floaters give us a call we'll get you in right away the other one would be a curtain in the vision and this is a little, little bit more dramatic but you might have a blind spot or like a darkened half moon in the periphery out to the side or towards your nose or down at the bottom, and it may get bigger and bigger slowly. And is that Don't ignore be- it. Get that, that looked at right away because that's very concerning for a retinal detail. And that's because that retina is, you know, all over that 
inner surface of the basketball. And yeah. it, it, is it falling then? Is that? Yes. So that's wow. the part. So the way a retina detaches is the retina develops a tear or a small hole. Uh-huh. When that happens, it can bleed, and that could be the floaters. Okay. So the floaters can sure. be a precursor. If that tear is not addressed or treated quickly, fluid tracks the eyes filled with this gel and fluid. That fluid will track under the tear, and kind of the retina will then kind of detach. And it's kind of like that lining is coming off, coming loose, and developing almost like a blister underneath it. Yeah. And so when that retina detaches, it no longer functions those photoreceptor cells that sense the light don't work temporarily while it's detached. And so that's why it causes a shadow, a blind spot. That's so where the air How do you detached. surgically repair that? So there are a couple different ways. The most common way is with a gas bubble. So what we do is do a, a surgery where we remove the gel of the eye through very small incisions with specialized instruments under a microscope, and then we fill the internal cavity of the eye with a gas bubble. So it's that, kind of reinflated. Yeah, it acts like a balloon, and so that balloon pushes the retina back into the correct position. So we can also kind of suck the fluid out as we're pushing that retina back. And then once that retina is attached... We do laser treatment to surround the uh, tear. And I'm showing you diagrams with my hands know, right now, and that's yeah, not going to show everyone listening. It's not show up on the podcast, but it was really good. It, it was. was really, it was yeah. really good. It made perfect sense, actually. Yeah, so. Yeah. so macular degeneration, um, there are both wet and dry. Is that correct? Yes. Are there other types? Th- those would be the most, most, most yeah, common. two major categories. And within those, there are kind of subtypes. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, but those um, are the main, main two. So tell us about those, and what are some of the treatments and procedures yeah. for, um, for both of those? So dry macular degeneration, or you may hear the term non-exudative macular degeneration, is the most common type. And this is a slowly progressive disease where the photoreceptors, those cells we discussed, tend to not function like they should and even in some cases they start to die off and you develop little areas of atrophy or death of cells in the center of the retina which is the macula so the macula is the very center part of our vision in the retina and so macular degeneration is just what it sounds like it's degeneration or loss of function of that macular tissue we don't fully understand why this happens it happens in some patients and not others so and it typically is age-related, and so the older we get, the higher we are at risk. There's also a large genetic component. So a lot of patients, at least 50% of patients who I see who have macular degeneration probably also have a family history. Oh yes, my grandmother, I remember she was getting shots or had macular degeneration or, you know, and that's a very common situation. Um, So that's the dry type. It's slow going. There are very limited treatment options for it. Our goal is to slow down the progression. And the way we do that is to modify those risk factors that we can. And so we do know of a few risk factors that are modifiable. The big one is actually smoking. Just like pretty much every other disease, smoking makes macular degeneration worse too. And so those who are smokers, if they can quit, I tell them that's the best thing you can do for your vision. UV light exposure may have some effect over our lifetime. So exposure to sun. um, So just working outside. Working outside, whatnot. And so the key there is wear sunglasses or a hat with a brim when we're outside. It's good to protect your face with a shaded hat anyway if you're out a lot for other reasons, skin cancer and that type of thing, which we do see skin cancers around the eye and the eyelids too. And then healthy diet. There's some data to show certain types of diets might be 
lower our risk for macular degeneration. Um, some of the data is not clear, uh, so I can't tell you exactly what type of diet. You know, people talk about like the Mediterranean diet or the, but really, fruits and vegetables, leafy green vegetables. We know there's some benefit there, and um, balanced, healthy diet, a little bit less fried foods and that type of thing. So, and then vitamin supplementation. There's a vitamin supplement called the Arids Two that stands for age-related eye disease study two and it's a formula that actually has very good data and then it shows it does slow the progression of dry macular degeneration in some patients it's not a cure-all for everybody but it probably helps and it also may reduce the risk of conversion from dry to the wet type which is the more aggressive oh, bad type so you can go from dry to you wet. can go from dry to wet oh okay yeah. i thought they were just very separate that it was yeah. either one or the other right that's oh, a common okay. misconception okay and in fact i often think of dry and wet as a continuum on the same dry is sort of stage one wet is sort of this severe stage two not everybody goes to that but sure a, a and the goal would be to stay <laughs> yeah the goal would be to stay yeah or if it does go to wet to catch it early <laughs> because the wet component we can actually slow that down uh, with treatment. And that's where the shots come in, the injections, and sometimes laser treatment and other things. Before we get to that, I will say with dry, there's a lot of research going on right now looking at new treatments for dry macular degeneration. So the goal would be, can you turn off the gene? Let's say this is a genetic disease. Let's say I have the gene for macular degeneration that's doing something that caused these cells to die off prematurely. Could you reconfigure so gene therapy they're looking at gene therapy they're also looking at stem cell therapy so could you inject stem cells under the retina surgically that could then grow new healthy retina and so there are some very early trials looking at this nothing ready for prime time yet but i think it's very likely in our lifetimes that there will be something that's pretty exciting it's exciting yeah yeah and um, so as these photoreceptors are dying i don't know if that's the right way to say yeah. that but um am i seeing then like a would I notice in my vision? Am I seeing like a like a, a blank spot, like a you floater? Might. So it might that, have a spot that's like, huh, I've got a little tiny right. blind spot from right. that or something. And it like, wouldn't move like a floater. And Whereas it a, wouldn't move like yeah, a floater. Okay. Where a floater floats. That's, you know, right. So if you move your eyes right to left, a floater may kind of float back and mm-hmm. forth like seaweed. If you had a blind spot for macular, it would stay in one place. Everywhere you look, it's there. And, and so, yes, that's exactly right. People often notice blind spots in the vision. Sometimes they don't notice blind spots, but they just notice, hey, it's a little harder to see small print or low light or colored print. That's a real common early sign is contrast sensitivity. So if you get a flyer with yellow print on a coupon or something or blue print, it may be very hard to see, but if it's really dark bold on white, it's easier to see. So those are all early symptoms of dry macular degeneration. So then let's talk about wet macular degeneration. Mm-hmm. And so those procedures that you're doing here, but you would be doing any sort of surgeries in Omaha yes, for those. Yes, correct. And less common. Yes. So um, for wet macular degeneration, very often it's a patient who has dry macular degeneration. Not always. Sometimes we see patients who may not know they had any macular when they come in with new symptoms. But most often it's, it's a patient who had some dry macular degeneration and they notice a change in their vision. And it's a relatively sudden change. It might not be instantaneous, but it might be over several days or weeks. They may say, uh, straight lines look wavy. I noticed driving down the road that telephone poles had a bump in the middle of them. 
or the lines on the road in my right eye had a curve that I know is not there. That's, that you would know. be very concerning. That would be very concerning, yes. Or sometimes it's a blind spot, but it's a fairly noticeable big blind spot that, again, came on suddenly. Any patient who has dry or wet macular degeneration, we ask them to self-monitor their vision at home with something we call an Amsler grid. For those who are interested, you could Google it, Amsler grid, A-M-S-L-E-R grid. And it's just a, it looks like graph paper. Okay, and it's just a graph with a dot in the middle. I think I've seen a magnet of this. Yes. Okay. Dr. Gergen has them in yes. his office on yes. a magnet. So okay. some people like to put it on the refrigerator. And what you're supposed to do is look at that grid. For patients who are at higher risk, we say every day, if you notice little wave eater distortions or blind missing spots in the graph that are new, you need to call us because that could be wet macular degeneration. And what, I guess the next question might be, why is this happening? What is happening to the retina that's causing this symptom? Yeah, why would it be distorted? Well, it, it's because there are abnormal blood vessels that are starting to grow under the retina, okay? One way to think of this is it might be a repair mechanism gone wrong. And so if you think about the fact that your retina, if you've got dry macular, the cells are dying off and atrophying, it's possible that the retina senses this and is starting to grow new blood vessels to try to repair those areas. The problem is, is it doesn't work very well. And these new blood vessels grow in a haphazard fashion, and they aren't very well uh, developed blood vessels. So they tend to leak fluid and sometimes even bleed. If they're leaking fluid, you may actually get a blister under the retina. So the retina, instead of being nice and flat, will have a bump in it. And so when that image is coming through your eye, it looks wavy. If you think about uh, a movie screen, if you had a, a movie, a, a film projector and a, and a screen and you tilted or twisted the screen, it, the image would look wavy. Right, sure. It's just like that. Like, yeah. it, like, I, like on curtains. On like curtains. If you, yes, if you tried yeah. to if show you tried a movie to, on your curtains. Instead of exactly, your wall, it's going to be that distorted like that. Yeah, so that's what's happening. This is fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> I can see why, okay, the retina is pretty cool. All it right. is cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm glad you, I didn't think you needed a lot of convincing, but I'm glad I did, you're No, around. no. With Dr. Gergen here at Eye Associates, how do you two work together? Yeah, we work together really well. Um, we have a great, you know, collaborative care model, um, which I think is the best way to take care of patients. There are so many subspecialized things right now that we have to offer patients, which is really great. But unfortunately, those subspecialties are not often available in every single community. And so um, the way that Dr. Gergen and I work together is, you know, we think of Dr. Gergen as their primary eye care doctor. And so he takes care of their treatment for medical conditions of the eye, like glaucoma, and he treats their glasses prescriptions and contact lenses and routine screenings. And if he sees something that needs retina specialty, then he will call me. If it's an emergency, he'll just call my cell phone and give me a call and say, hey, Dave, this patient has a retinal detachment. You know, I'm going to send him over. I say, great. Or if it's a patient with diabetic retinopathy, he'll usually refer them to me the next time I'm in the office. And so we talk, and when I'm working here, usually Dr. Gergen's right in the office right next to me. So we, we talk about on cases together and bounce ideas off of each other. And it's a really great relationship and really cool uh, setup that we have here. And the clinic itself is 
fantastic uh, facility. For those who haven't been there, great optical shop, very good selection of glasses, rivals any in Omaha that I've seen. <laughs> That's good. That's great to know. Yeah, <laughs> and um, very good, you know, great diagnostic equipment. And we can do just about everything here that we can do in Omaha with the exception of surgery. And there are certain tests. Um, there's something called a fluorescein angiogram, which is a dye test that will sometimes perform for certain retina conditions where we inject dye and then we take photographs of the retina. Um, we don't have that here, um, but we don't have to use it very often. So again, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have that here. It's not needed that frequently. So. Those types of surgeries, are you doing those at Midwest Eye? Yes. Or are you doing it at a hospital? Or um, Most of those are done at Midwest Eye Care. We have a surgery center at our Midtown 43rd and Dodge office. 90% of our eye surgeries are done there. And we do some at the hospital. Usually I do surgeries at Methodist Hospital when I need to do surgeries at the hospital. The reasons why someone might go to the hospital would be if it's an emergency after hours or on the weekend, so a retinal detachment that couldn't wait till Monday, um, we would do that at the hospital. Or for medical reasons, if a patient has some health conditions that might make them at higher risk for anesthesia, complications, we would recommend so doing that at the hospital. Just a safer environment. It's a little bit, yeah, for more complicated medical situations, yeah. But majority of eye procedures are done under local or even topical anesthetic, so very low risk from that standpoint. Should I ask about how you and Heimbaugh work together? Sure. I mean, yeah. do you have a lot of crossover in patients? We do, actually. Yeah, so similar to Dr. Gergen and myself, it's a little different, but he also has... Um, you know, his clinic here where he's doing a lot of cataract surgery and cornea evaluations. And through that, you know, in his clinic in Omaha too, he will come across retina issues. And so he'll refer patients to me for retina uh, consultations. Conversely, many of my patients will develop cataracts. And so I will refer patients to him who need cataract surgery or cornea surgery or so there's a lot of a lot of back and forth, and Dr. Heimbaugh and I are in the same practice in Omaha, so we work side by side when we're in Omaha quite often too. So it sounds like a fun group. It's a fun group. We're a good group. Yeah, we're all uh, get along really well, and um, we're pretty lucky. I think we all enjoy coming to work every day, and it's pretty cool that we get to do what we do and help patients while we do it. So very fortunate. And we're delighted that you guys are willing and able to come out here and, and be a part of the yeah. Cast Health family. And oh, it's been a great relationship. Mm -hmm.